In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 25. David and his men had guarded the sheep of Nabal, a rich but rude landowner in the wilderness. On a festive day, David sent some of his men to ask him for some food as a reward for their service. But he refused and insulted David, calling him a rebel and a runaway servant. David, furious, decided to attack him and his household with 400 men. That is, until Abigail, Nabal's wife, who was wise and beautiful, quickly stepped in. She prepared a large amount of food and met David on the way. Good morning and blessed Pentecost season. Today is Thursday, June 1st, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. We give thanks to God for the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, whose generous contributions help support Thy Strong Word. LHF is a ministry which provides Lutheran resources in various languages. Visit them online at lhfmissions.org to learn more about their translating and publishing work. But for now, please join me in welcoming my guest this morning to help us discern and divide 1 Samuel chapter 25. It's the Reverend Jason Wagner, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in High Ridge, Missouri. Pastor Wagner, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, well, it's nice to have you. I tell you, we haven't talked since Daniel. Uh, I think we talked about before we got on the air, but it's nice to have you back. Um, Here we are, 25 chapters into 1 Samuel. It has been an interesting study so far. But now David as king, well, we, we learned today that he's not exactly a perfect person or a perfect king. He certainly has his own foibles. But uh, we also see that not everything is well in the kingdom. Not everybody is perfectly happy with David. And yet that doesn't erode the fact that David is a man after God's own heart and that God is going to use him to not only bless the nation of Israel, but to point forward to our King Jesus. Uh, Before we begin, though, I think it's a good idea for us to start off our time together in prayer. And I invite you to lead us in that prayer. I would love to. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you are the giver of all true wisdom. And so as we consider uh, your word today, uh, help us and shape us after the wisdom of your servant, Abigail, uh, who knew to look to you as the source of everlasting wisdom and was used by you uh, to guide and direct your servant, David. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, before we read any of our texts for today, maybe help the listeners catch up if perhaps they missed the last episode. Uh, What has happened that leads us to where we are this morning? Well, at this point in 1 Samuel, we have David basically, well, on the run, for lack of a better term. Uh, Essentially, at this point, he has been anointed as the next king. And so, as you were saying, you're referring to him as King David, and it's almost as though he is, but he isn't, uh, because Saul is still the king, and Saul very much at this point wants to get rid of David. So this story uh, actually is kind of slapped in between two different chapters where David is being pursued by Saul, and yet at the same time has an opportunity to kill the king. 
And yet David knows that is not his place. And so in both chapters 24 and 26, we find David sparing the life of Saul. And here, right in the middle, in chapter 25, we have a bit of a respite as uh, David and his band of soldiers that are loyal to him have traveled away uh, from, at least for the moment, uh, from getting into any more skirmishes uh, with Saul and his troops. Yes, and you're right to point out uh, calling him King David. In fact, I'd like to hear uh, your opinion on it. It wasn't too long ago we were discussing this idea that, actually way back in like chapter 13, I believe it was, um, or 18, it, it doesn't matter. But anyway, we're talking about when, once David is anointed uh, to be the king by Samuel, um, and the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Yahweh enters into him, uh, simultaneously, you know, the spirit of Yahweh leaves Saul, and of course, then he's tormented by this, by this, uh, this evil spirit, or how you know the negative spirit, however you want to describe it. Mm-hmm. And that's when David comes into his service way back in those chapters. But uh, and of course, back then Saul loved David, but that's for another time. But we talked about how you know was it at that moment that David was king and Saul was basically a usurper? Or, um, despite the fact that David, of course, had to grow into the role, um, so talk to me a little bit about that. Like, how do we understand David being the anointed king, but Saul still sitting on the throne from the perspective of God's will? The way that I would read the the relationship is kind of twofold. Uh, From the perspective of David... Uh, the anointing of David is as good as it already coming to pass. And so while the fullness of his kingdom, the same kind of language we might speak about with Christ, uh, while the fullness of his kingdom is yet to be realized, uh, he is already as good as king. And yet at the same time, in terms of his relationship to Saul, David is right to recognize, and we continue to see this through this whole section, that it is not his place to remove Saul from the throne. That is left into the hands of Yahweh. And so, while David certainly is already uh, assured, and in one sense begins uh, his role, uh, he does not take that up in full until Yahweh sees fit to remove Saul entirely from the throne in his time, which won't come until the very end of 1 Samuel. Mm -hmm. So very much a now but not yet, right? That's pretty much what you're saying. Absolutely. And and certainly the now and not yet is an experience uh, that we know as God's people, and so we see that parallel uh, for David in this time when he's out well, he's out in the wilderness, very literally. Uh, he's out in the wilderness, and yes, he is already certain of his future as king, and it's one that he already shares just in a hidden way. And certainly then we see the parallel to our own experience as people uh, who are made to reign with Christ for all of eternity, and that's something that's already now uh, as those who are made Christ's people by our baptism And yet the fullness of that is not realized until the fullness of Christ's kingdom comes about and he returns in his glory as the king of all things. 
So our last chapter yesterday sort of comes to an end when Saul has finally come to terms with God's judgment on him, right? Samuel, back in chapter 13, revealed that God had rejected him. And he looks at David and he says, I know that you shall surely be king and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. And he asks that you will, that he does not destroy his name or, uh, you know, out of his father's house. Then our chapter begins today, just reading the first verse, which is a little bit separate from the rest of it. Uh, now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him and they buried him in his house at Ramah. So very much a transition here, too, also as you were talking about. Not only do we see slowly the kingdom being wrought away from Saul's hands and, and given into the hand of David, but now this prophet and last judge of Israel has died. Yeah, the overlapping time of the judges and the kings uh, has uh, come to an end, and somewhat appropriately so with as you were talking about, that Saul has a recognition. He may not completely always buy into this recognition that he <laughs> that he seems to have at the end of First uh, Samuel 24, uh, but he does recognize that David will be the next king, and uh, David becomes the exemplar uh, of kings in the Old Testament, and certainly then uh, this great uh, shadow of Christ uh, for the future. And yet at the same time, with that movement away from Saul, uh, the close relationship between Samuel and Saul uh, also now completely comes to an end. You know, Samuel has been this trusted mouthpiece of God who is now gone. This link back to the time of the judges is gone. This man to whom Saul actually listened and respected, although he didn't always obey, uh, now he is gone. And uh, what I really appreciate just in, in these very quick little notes, I mean, you're right, it's just one verse, and it's truly just kind of shoehorned in here, but uh, you have the impression that this is just when it happened, that Samuel had died. Uh, but I found interesting in uh, my reading uh, for today that he is the one person about whom in the Scriptures that it says, all Israel assembled and mourned for him really highlights the unique place uh, that Samuel has in the history of God's people uh, and the unique respect that he has among the people of Israel. Indeed. Well, following his death then, um, I guess there's an indeterminate amount of time that has passed because then in the next section, and this is going to be verse—actually, it's the second half of verse 1, uh, and I'm going to read, oh, I don't know, to verse 8 or so. Um, let's see what happens. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had three thousand sheep and a thousand goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus shall you greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. 
Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they have missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Brother, help us understand what's going on here, right? So he gets up and he goes to this wilderness, um, and it seems like he has he and his men have done something for this rich man that was not asked of them, but he, he wants some benefit in, in the service that they provided. Take us through this. Oh, exactly. Uh, so we'll back up just a little bit and kind of sure. sort of place where we are. So you have these couple different place markers, the wilderness of Paran, you have uh, Maon and Carmel. So all of these places are south of Jerusalem. So first of all, what it seems like is David is just hightailing it out of town. He is going as far to the far south end of Israel as possible uh, to remove himself, potentially, from further conflict with Saul. At least that's kind of what you can infer from heading down to the wilderness of Paran, which could have run all the way down to the Sinai Peninsula, so way south. But it would appear that he, and we'll find this out a little bit more um, in more detail, but it's already there in David's instructions, that he has run into uh, some workers along with the sheep of a very rich man who lives, well, further north, uh, not too far south of Jerusalem. And he lives in Maon and his business is in Carmel, which are two towns that are not very far from one another. And David and his troops come across this man's shepherds along with his sheep. They must have been taking the flocks down there to find good pasture uh, before they have to head back north, and we'll get to that in a second. But before we get all of that, then we get this introduction, uh, which is kind of a backwards introduction. You don't get his name first. Uh, we get where he was from and where his business was, and he was very rich, and he had thousands of sheep and a thousand goats, and it was time for shearing his sheep in Carmel. Well, so all of that tells that these uh, the shepherds, along with their sheep, are going to be coming up from the wilderness of Paran, along with David and his soldiers, is what we find out in just a moment. And then finally, we get his name. After all of that introduction, the name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife is Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, and we'll hear more about especially her discernment as the story goes along. But Nabal was harsh and badly behaved. And he was a Calebite, which looks backwards to the Ziphites were also Calebites, and they had betrayed David over to Saul. And we're going to eventually, that's a shadow of what we're going to see here also with Nabal. But before David can really know any of that, all he knows is that this very wealthy man is bringing his sheep up to be sheared. So this is sometime probably in the spring, uh, would have been typical. And because there are so many sheep, that tells David there's got to be a whole lot of workers, which means to feed a whole lot of workers, you got to have a whole lot of food. Well, his soldiers have been on the run for a little bit. They've been out in the wilderness of Paran. It seems wise to him to undertake some protection for this rich man's shepherds and their sheep. 
Uh, and by doing that, by offering, yes, an unasked-for favor, um, David could expect to potentially impose upon Nabal to get some food for his men. And so he sends this overly gracious request back. He says three times over, peace, peace, peace. He's making his intentions clear. It's not as though David is um, an unknown quantity at this point throughout Israel. People know who David is. Go stretching all the way back to the defeat of Goliath, but also after that, that he's killed thousands of Philistines in battle for uh, uh, underneath Yahweh. Uh, so it's very clear that people would know who David is, which is important <laughs> in just a minute when we get to Nabal's response. But David wants to make it clear. You don't have to be worried about anything. I'm not here to threaten anyone. In fact, we have taken care of your shepherds. We made sure that no harm came to them and not one sheep was lost. Nothing has been missed the whole time. They were well taken care of. You can even go talk to your men. They will tell you the exact same thing. And so David puts himself then, even by the way he describes himself at the very end, when he makes his request, he puts himself beneath Nabal. It's really a statement of deference that after saying all these things have taken place and you know David's reputation, nevertheless, please give whatever you have at hand to your son, David. It's the same kind of language that he would use looking to the king, uh, Saul. And so it's a statement really of, you know, I, I'm going to humble myself because I recognize that I'm somewhat at your mercy in terms of we need some food. And I would expect that out of uh, a certain sense of kindness and benevolence that you would provide that. And, and so that's really what's going on in this section. You would think, and you're right, he, he asks very nicely and very diplomatically and very deferentially, you know, with his reputation preceding him, um, and I'm sure it's also well known at this point that, you know, this is a, a leader of the people up and coming, he could have possibly even demanded it or, or sort of threatened in such a way, you know, listen, I have this band of forces with me, you better give it, but that's not the nature of the way David works. Except what happens next shows, well, a little bit of a crack in, in David, but also just how, well, how much of a jerk this rich guy is. We're <laughs> going to read verses 9 through 13. Here we go. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men whom come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every, every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on their sword, and David also strapped on his sword, and about four hundred men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. So, <laughs> so brother, they, they come down and they say, they say these things. They, they, you know, peace, peace, peace. Your, your son David wants these for his men. Uh, please give them to us. Please help them out. We helped you out. And the guy's answer is an insult. You know, who's this David guy? Uh, 
but then David's response is, okay, I'll just take 400 people against him. I mean, you know, there's one thing that uh, way back in way back in the day I learned is you have this use of force has to be has to rise and only meet at the level of resistance. Well, it seems like David is um, responding to an insult with uh, an uh, with a use of force that's way excessive. Uh, help us understand the dynamics between this man Nabal, what he thinks of David and David's reaction. Well, it would appear uh, that Nabal thinks a lot of himself, uh, for one, uh, and also he very much is fashioned in a similar manner after Saul. I mean, that's that becomes very clear. He uses similar language to Saul the that Saul does, referring to David as the son of Jesse, which is really ironic, isn't it? First he says, who is David? (laughs) And then he tells us, and David didn't introduce himself that way. He didn't send his servants saying, the son of Jesse comes to you. So nevertheless, you have Nabal obviously knows who he is. So the first statement, I don't think is so much of, I don't know who David is, but who does David think he is? Uh, is more almost the way that this comes off. And then you have beyond that, you know, then you have this not very subtle dig at David that I hear, you know, there's lots of servants these days who are basically traitors against their masters. I mean, that's the kind of language that you get. So he's making it very clear that Nabal is essentially threatening David in return that I, you know, I might just turn you in. Why in the world would I give you something to eat? We'll come back to that in just a second. And at the end, he he essentially says, you know, I don't even know that you're even David's servants. I don't know where you came from. But verse 11 really is rich because in that one verse, it's I, my, 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 I, I... <laughs> Uh, Nabal thinks a lot of himself. So there's just this multitude of first-person pronouns uh, about how I'm not going to do any of this with all of my things and give them to you. There's absolutely no question. He has no desire whatsoever to help David. And like I said, I think part of that is he probably has a certain allegiance to Saul. And part of that is he imagines himself to be a lesser Saul, mm-hmm. uh, which we'll come back later in the reading also. Yeah, and I, I was thinking too, Saul's sympathizer clearly is what this guy is. Um, but what do you think about David's reaction, right? So he he says, all right, guys, strap on your sword. I'm taking 400 of you. Uh, you know, I, I know we're going to, obviously, this is the scene that introduces Abigail next. But uh, before we even get into that, do you think this is an appropriate reaction for David? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> so you have you have David tries to be overly magnanimous, although to be fair, there's something about even the way that he approaches that he recognizes, you know, his coming on everyone knows that he's coming with this group of soldiers along with him. That could be threatening. So, you know, that takes uh, the threat level up to about three. and then and then Nabal turns it up to about six. Uh, with his response in return and not so suddenly uh, giving the impression that he's going to let Saul know what's going on about this potentially. And then David takes it to 11. I mean, it's just off the charts immediately. 
uh, he's going to come in with uh, all of his soldiers, at least two thirds of his soldiers, ready to come against what, yes, is a very rich man, but that doesn't mean he has an army. Uh, and but you know David what? Ends- one thing you said. One thing you said helps me understand it a little bit, though, because when he says, oh, there are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters, I've always understood that to be Nabal kind of a dig at David for being some sort of runaway slave or runaway servant. Uh, But it didn't occur to me until you mentioned it that there is inherent in that in that insult the threat that he could be turning him back into Saul. So I, I do see a little bit of a need to maybe guard himself, although I still think, of course, the reaction is a little over the top. But but what you said, I think, helped me understand that. Well, so I, what happened—oh, go, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just, just going to go on to the next text, and we can add it to the conversation. We're getting close to the break. But uh, starting with verse 14, I want to add through 17. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by day and by night, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Uh, Pausing right there, uh, he is a worthless man. We've heard that phrase used a bunch uh, in judges to describe people who, well, frankly, are just worthless, people who don't have good attitudes, people who are up to no good. Um, It's interesting that one of these young men is going to Nabal's wife to complain. Basically, your husband, our master, is such a jerk, but you know, we don't want all this harm to come because he ran his mouth. Oh, without a doubt. Uh, that worthless term, uh, I'm glad you pointed that out, because that's exactly the term that is used at the beginning of First Samuel to describe the sons of Eli, uh, who... Uh, abandon their responsibilities and essentially abuse the people uh, in their roles underneath the high priest. Uh, I think the other interesting part here is when he says at the end, he's such a worthless man, no one can talk to him, which is evidenced by the fact that the servant is not bothering to talk to him. He's gone to, which would have been culturally really bizarre, he goes to the master's wife and hoping that she can somehow solve this problem because he recognizes we're in a lot of trouble here. Uh, David and his soldiers are not exactly someone that it would be wise to offend. And that is exactly what he recognizes Nabal has done. Exactly. Well, you know what? We're going to have to take a break. But when we get back, we're going to see just how Abigail decides to handle this situation. But folks, don't go anywhere. When we return, Pastor Wagner and I will keep on going through 1 Samuel chapter 25. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. 
but they need our help because Good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Dr. Jason Wagner, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in High Ridge, Missouri. Thank you for joining us this morning. I pray that God blesses you through our study. If you know someone who might like the show, be sure to let them know that they can tune in over the air in St. Louis on AM 850, or they can also listen live or on demand at kfuo.org. You can also hear the program as a podcast or on KFUO's own mobile app, or this is a great way, folks, you can tune in on your smart speaker. If you have one of those smart assistant speakers like Alexa, just ask it to tune in to KFUO Radio. As always, I'm available to answer any questions you have or to hear your feedback at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Drop by, say hello. Just thanks for being a loyal listener. Now back to our text. So, Pastor Wagner, right before the break, we were just getting into where the servants are going to Abigail, and they're like, listen, your husband cannot be reasoned with, and I guess they're looking for her to go reason with them. It's not exactly what she does. Um, Anything before we move into the next part of our text? The only thing that I would say is... David had given the instruction to his servants that when you go to Nabal, you know, you can ask your own servants and they'll tell you that we have made sure that they were protected when they were out in the wilderness and nothing has happened to them. And that's exactly what this servant of Nabal comes back and says to Abigail. But apparently Nabal is a worthless man. And so not only can he not be talked to, he also doesn't want to talk to anybody else, so he doesn't find out that David is a man of his word, at least uh, in this section, and has done exactly what he said and protected uh, Nabal's shepherds and sheep. Here's what happens next, starting with verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her. And she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all this, all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. 
But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, because Yahweh has restrained you from blood guilt and saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil by my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for Yahweh will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of Yahweh, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of Yahweh your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when Yahweh... Uh, and when Yahweh... Uh, oh, I messed it up. <laughs> Sorry, here we go. Uh, well, I tell you what, why don't we just end right there? We'll end right in the middle of her uh, soliloquy here, especially since I lost my place. Um, it's a long one, but take us to where I uh, fell off the road here. Uh, so Abigail is running up to David. She's intercepting him, and she's coming with a huge spread. It really is a remarkable scene, and it's it goes towards the way that Abigail is described here as being this woman of discernment. Abigail could have thought, you know what, I'm going to get all this food together, and I'll send this servant who came and told me this. Well, if these servants had come down the road to David, he might have slaughtered them on the road expecting mm -hmm. them to be coming to attack. But Abigail comes herself, and she comes with this absurd amount of food, 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep that are already prepared. So everything that comes at the beginning there is food that is ready to be eaten right now. And then the second half of the food, when it talks about parched grain and clusters of raisins and cakes of figs, these were common foods that were used during the season when you didn't have fresh food. So this would have been provisions not just for the moment, but this would have been providing uh, for these soldiers going forward. And so all of this is brought along, and while she's coming with all of this and going to meet him on the road, David is still stewing, right? <laughs> He's stewing still about, you know, I have guarded this fellow in vain out in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of everything that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good, which is really the heart of his whole complaint. He expected that I have done good to you, that you would do good to me in return. And now, since you've done evil to me, I will do evil to you. And what I couldn't help but get past is in using that language, you hear the echoes that of what Paul uses in Romans chapter 12 when he talks about uh, do not overcome, not do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And what we really see in Abigail is an instance of this, of overcoming evil with good. It's just now that the evil that is going to befall potentially her household is coming from David, even if it originated in Nabal's offense. So she comes to David then, and and as she comes to David. She falls down on the ground, and immediately she says, I'm taking all of the guilt. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is. 
And so I had sort of left it till now, but it's kind of hard to avoid. The name right. Nabal literally means fool or stupid. Um, now that it, it must to some degree, you have all different kinds of ideas that people have out there that did his parents really name him dumb? Um, <laughs> well, it might have meant it might have had different shades of meaning potentially, or it might have been pronounced differently and so been something else. But she is certainly leaning into Nabal means fool, and he lives down to that name all the time. Now, we've seen it already. We'll see it again in a little while towards the end of the story. And so she says, you know what? He is so worthless and such a fool that I am standing in in his place. Even though she has done nothing wrong, she asks for forgiveness. She asks for mercy and not to regard him, regard her and what she is saying. And then she continues on. And as you were saying that this is this long speech that she gives. It's the longest speech given by any woman in the Old Testament. Oh, and wow. as as she goes on in talking about this, uh, she goes on from ta- asking for forgiveness, standing in the place of Nabal and the whole household behind her. And she seeks then to prevent David. So part of her argument is not just asking for forgiveness, but then not wanting David then to give into this impulsive, foolish massacre that he is intending uh, to undertake when he gets to the house of Nabal. And so he says, uh, she says to him rather, the, Yahweh has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. David's going to come back to those same words in a little while. And, and that's right at the center. This same language is used, I, I believe, in the story of uh, of Gideon. And, and when Gideon is sent finally with only 300, starts out with 32,000, gets, the Lord says, no, 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 that's too many. Uh, cut, and he cuts down to 10,000. No, 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 that's too many. 300 against more than 100,000 soldiers. And it's plenty because Yahweh is the one who will save. And so it's said right at the beginning, I believe it's Judges chapter 7, that only 300 are sent so that no one in Israel would have this opinion that they were saving with their own hand. Salvation comes from the hand of Yahweh. And Abigail gives testimony to that and says, this is exactly, David, why you do not want to come and do this. Because to do this would be to be a direct offense against Yahweh. It is not your place to take salvation into your own hands for something that Yahweh has not sent you to do. And then she goes, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, so she prevents him from, you know, doing this evil, which he's going to acknowledge. And I'm going to finish her little soliloquy here, plus David's response. But we're going to see that she also has great faith in Yahweh's plans for David. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to let you go on, of course, but let me add these these uh, verses to our conversation, starting with verse 28 this time. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for Yahweh will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of Yahweh, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of Yahweh your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling, And when Yahweh has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you 
and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when Yahweh has dwelt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left in Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. So there we go, without messing it up that time. We have uh, the rest of her, and boy, she she knows David. So, you know, I, we talked earlier about how, you know, who's this David? Who's this son of Jesse? Well, Nabal can pretend like he doesn't know, but boy, Abigail knows who he is. Oh, it's a beautiful description, isn't it? Uh, you have... You have this really, in, in a very real way, it's a confession of faith, um, a shadow of what Yahweh will say about David in 2 Samuel 7 and the promise of an everlasting household. Uh, the language that's used here is a sure house uh, or a lasting uh, dynasty that will just go on and on that's being founded by Yahweh through you. And then you have, uh, beyond that, uh, you have this language that talks about how uh, Yahweh has done good to my Lord according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel. The right place for any king in Israel to think of themselves as is to think of themselves as prince over Israel. Because as Samuel, and I think that's uh, the nice nod to the connection back to the beginning of the chapter is that Samuel is absolutely indignant, obviously, earlier at the very idea of wanting a king because he recognizes that to take a king in Israel is to usurp the throne from Yahweh. And so the right place to speak of the one who's in the role of king, whether it's Saul or David or beyond, is really to talk about him being a prince, one who is underneath the everlasting king. And that everlasting king is also one who is going uh, to show honor to David. And that's confessed here by Abigail. She has that interesting statement uh, about how, you know, if men rise up to seek your life, the Lord, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of Yahweh your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Uh, again, we're talking about David. You can't get beyond that language. You hear the echo of Yahweh defeating Goliath through David. And that's exactly what God will continue to do for the sake of his servant that ultimately he will bring about victory, yes, for David to arise to the throne. But you certainly then see hints of the greater David and the eternal victory uh, that is glanced, even if darkly, uh, ahead in Christ. And David responds then, you know, by saying, uh, praising her wisdom, praising Yahweh on her behalf, um, 
And, and he says that multiple times over, right? Before it was peace, peace, peace. Now it's blessed, 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 blessed be Yahweh, blessed be your discretion, blessed be you. Because you have done exactly what we talked about a moment ago. You have saved me from working salvation with my own hands. Because he does seem genuinely, you know, uh, grateful for her. Like she, she intercepts. It, you know, sin is irrational. David is being motivated by hurt feelings, and he's he's going after him with this show of force. He's going to do something stupid, and here she steps in. You know, Nabal is mean, which means foolish. Her husband is foolish, but David is just as foolish in the way he's acting. And here's this beautiful and wise woman. Who gets in the way? And oh, thank God for women who have done that throughout history. <laughs> so we see that he seems to be very, um, very, very grateful. There's no indication that he's necessarily smitten with her at this point. Although you know, people who read the story kind of knows what's going to happen. But but yeah, he, she comes and he takes this just huge feast that he brings her, which is amazing. I wanted to highlight though you bringing out the idea of prince and king because. Uh, we've been talking about princes and kings for many weeks now, and you're the first person who's brought this up. Um, in Hebrew, uh, negid, which means prince or leader, um, is different than melech. And I guess I hadn't really considered that, but what a, what a great point, because ultimately there is only one king, and that's God and Yahweh in this case. Amen. Uh, it's And like I said, I, I really think that grows out of that whole discussion and how you get the first king that you get uh, in human terms is Saul, which is everything that looks like what a king should be and nothing that a king should be at the same time. And, and yet at the same time, then here in David, you get something different. He does act more as a prince. When David is referred to as one who, you know, is a heart, a man after God's own heart, that, that could mean a number of different things. But I think one layer to what that that must be telling us is that, well, yes, we see David here as clearly a sinner. He is clearly one who ought not to be trying to save himself, and yet he tries to anyway, and tries to avenge uh, this dishonor uh, that Nabal has shown to him. But he is willing to listen. And I think that is certainly a hallmark of the humility that God calls his people to, that the essence of what it means to be God's people today, yes, is first and foremost to be made righteous in Christ. But when we're continually encouraged to be humble, to humble ourselves, the essence of that is not merely to make ourselves lowly, but it's lowly in just this sense— to be lowly in the sense of being willing to listen to the one who is greater than us. And so in that sense, Ab Abigail here becomes a voice of Yahweh to David so that he recognizes, I have no business doing this. And uh, as you said, uh, it is a true blessing when anyone uh, gives us uh, such direction uh, especially uh, for the impulsiveness that also often comes, especially with young men uh, like David. And, and I also believe that we see here uh, a distinction between him and Saul. We're only speculating, but I just don't see Saul acting in this way. Had Saul been in David's spot, been insulted, had these soldiers, uh, you know, again, we don't know, but we, 
we might expect him to behave differently than David. As you said, David is open to influence, especially, of course, if it's a good word from the Lord. I'm, I'm going to now read verses 36 through uh, what we might say is 39a. Uh, I'm going to leave the last bit off for the moment. Um, here's what happens next. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, Yahweh struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be Yahweh, who has avenged the insult that I received at the hands of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. Yahweh has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. All right, so pausing there for a moment. So, uh, you know, the wife comes home and he's holding a feast. And I'm reminded of some of your words at the beginning of the show. He's holding a feast like that of a king. Um, He really does think he's like Saul. Absolutely. It, it, the, the beginning of that little section here, I think, is such an, a sad and yet amusing contrast that he is uh, this lesser king in his own mind. And yet at the same time, you also can't escape the fact that he is holding a feast, a feast like a king, after he just said, I don't have any bread or water or anything else for David and his troops. In the meantime, I'm going to gorge myself on food and wine. Uh, The contrast is really striking. It's not as though he has no ability to help one who has protected uh, his possessions and his workers. Uh, He is concerned only for himself and certainly does imagine himself to be his own ruler. And he um, dies, right? I mean, she tells him this after the wine has left him, which I just, I think some of these phrases, uh, these turns of phrases, the way we translate the Hebrew into English are just great, and that's one of them. The wine had left him. She tells him, and what does he have, like a stroke or a heart attack? I guess we don't know, but um, but he, he ends up dead. It's hard to say. And so I agree. First, I, I do want to just throw in my thoughts on that, too. Uh, that, again, you see her discernment that nothing good will come from saying something to Nabal. Remember, he didn't know that she took off with a whole bunch of his food uh, before and delivered all of this to David and his soldiers. So she comes back now, and this crisis has been averted comes home, finds that he is totally drunk and having this feast and decides eh, probably not the right time. So you're right. Comes back in the morning when the wine has gone out of him and his heart died within him. So it could be a heart attack. It could be, it could be a stroke. It could be, and I think really the next verse is what's really important. So this verse could mean, it could mean that he lives for 10 days from an initial event, or it could be that he is just dumbfounded 
and struck by these extraordinary words. And so it could be the first part could be in one sense psychological. We're not really that's not really clear. What is most important is really what's verse 38 is that Yahweh strikes him dead. And then David reacts to that blessed be Yahweh who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. Uh, the two things that David says there, I, I think, are so significant. One is, again, you hear this same thing theme that's echoed through the scriptures. And uh, that's where I think reading this with, what I really thought was interesting, what I kept going back to was Romans chapter 12. And in there, it talks about, and it's quoting from Deuteronomy, I believe, that vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's not David's place. So likewise, it's not our place to take vengeance, even if we have been harmed. It's not in uh, our choice to do such a thing. And likewise, not only has Yahweh done this, so he has made sure that justice has been served, but even more than that, he has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. David has been protected and Yahweh has done that through the voice of Abigail and calling uh, to him to relent and forgive her, and by extension, the whole household for the offense against him. Well, so far in this chapter, we've seen surprise after surprise. David makes a humble request of the rich Nabal to provide food for his men, and He's rejected, and that's surprising. And then after the insult, David's overreaction is surprising. Abigail's response is surprising. David's response to Abigail's pleas and her gift is surprising. And I think what happens next is pretty surprising after Nabal dies by the Lord's uh, punishment. We're going to pick up with uh, the, the last part of 39 and read through the rest of the chapter. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and she bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael his daughter, uh, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. Uh, speaking just of Abigail, though, here. So he, he's basically, after Nabal is dead, he sends her word and says, Hey, I'll, I'll take you as my wife. Um, I don't know what it would have looked like culturally in the context I don't know if she would have been a wealthy widow who inherited everything from Nabal after his death or if she would have needed to be taken care of. I, I, I really don't know. And maybe you can give us some insight. But David takes her to be his wife. Is her response one of gratitude or submission or both? I would certainly say it's both, even though at the same time, by the very description that Abigail mounts a donkey, and her five young women attended her. I, I think that context gives us the sense mm -hmm. that the household has fallen to her. And yet, 
even as one who is now a wealthy widow, she comes with this message, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So not only does she humble herself uh, in the sense of being a servant, but a servant to the servants. That is the lowest possible position. Uh, and I think really what we hear in all of that is you hear, again, this sense of she is one who recognizes and trusts in what Yahweh has said that he will do through David. And so she recognizes the honor that it is uh, to be welcomed into his household. Uh, at the same time, in many ways, they are a unique match, one for another. Uh, the language that's originally used way back at the beginning to describe her as discerning and beautiful are terms that are often used to describe David. That he is often referred to as being beautiful, or at least the same root word. The same root word of being right. discerning is also used as David. That she, in many ways, while she is faithful to her foolish husband all the way up until his death, in many ways, she is uh, a perfect match uh, for David, and Yahweh provides for her in an extraordinary way, in, as you said, one more surprising way uh, here at the end. Well, I know there's a little bit more we could continue to talk about, especially with these other wives and what's going on, but I'm afraid <laughs> we're at the end of our time together. So I will just say thank you for joining us this morning. I'd like to thank my guest, the Reverend Dr. Jason Wagner, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in High Ridge, Missouri. Pastor, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Folks, uh, join us tomorrow as we keep on going. We'll probably do a little bit of cleanup for the end of this chapter, but we're going to go into chapter 26 where David spares Saul's life again. But that'll be tomorrow. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.